Thank you very much, Jacob, and thank you, Dan. Uh, I appreciate that the church is doing this. I think you need to be in prayer for the uh, upcoming VBS uh, and also the children's camp. We don't want to leave any of them behind uh, and uh, help them to enjoy the time as well as our church grows. I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. We've been in Philippians for a while, a kind of uh, skip and jump from different uh, passages as we work through it because of various things, Father's Day, Mother's Day, and uh, Lord's Supper services. So we're getting back into the text in chapter 2 of uh, Philippians. I'd like to read for you verses uh, 1 through 4. And by the way, Jacob, as a uh, teacher, (laughs) uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible is actually edition 1 that the Christian Standard Bible became edition two. So there are a few changes, but a lot of similarities in it. So just to let you know, the Christian Standard Bible is the revised edition of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, if you didn't know that, but that's okay. Appreciate you reading that for us. All right, chapter two of of Philippians in the Christian Standard. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And may God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that the power of the Holy Spirit will help us to understand it, that you will teach us so that we can be faithful Christians and a faithful church, helping our community to know the love of Christ, the joy that we can have in him, and the joy that they can have in knowing Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, This particular text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, actually is part of a larger whole that starts out in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, oh yeah, just one thing I want to talk to you about. And it extends all the way through this chapter, the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, all the way down through uh, chapter 2, verse 18. And it includes... A beautiful hymn, if you will, of uh, the mind of Christ and God's mind and heart. Uh, The church may have sung this, but Paul inserts it in a very powerful way as he talks to the Philippian believers about church, about how they can be a faithful church, a glorious church for that matter. If you remember, Paul starts out by thanking the church. It was made up of Lydia and her household and the people who were, went down to the river to pray, they, uh, Paul and testified there and, and they became Christians and then they were thrown into prison and the Philippian jailer through the great miracle of God and the earthquake and all the doors opening and the chains falling off and, and yet none of the, none of the uh, convicts or, or people in the jail escaped and the Philippian heard uh, about this and saw this and said, what do I need to be saved? And he became saved and everybody heard in his household, maybe even in the jail, 
And they all became Christians and they began to form and they formed the Philippian church. And Paul loved that church very much. He must have had a very sweet time with them. And so he's writing them from prison. You remember this uh, Philippians is a prison, what we call a prison letter. And he's writing to them, thanking them for giving him some support, some money, some Epaphroditus came and saw to some of the needs of Paul in prison and he's thanking them and he wanted them to know that he'd love to come to see him again. But he had a predicament. His predicament was that Nero, who was the Pharaoh, could render a judgment and execute him for being a Christian because Paul was really arrested for proclaiming Christ as Lord. And we're going to hear this in this, uh, this letter of every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And uh, the Romans didn't like that. They had gods all over the place. And in fact, even they thought their Caesars, their emperors were... Their leaders were gods. And to say that they would have to bow the knee to this, this Jewish man from Nazareth who they cl were claiming was a god and was, uh, and was the Christ was bad, anathema. And, the, and Nero had sent some of, supposedly, the Christians to be eaten up by lions. So Paul knew that his death could be very evident. But he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was his predicament. And he wanted them to know whether or not he got to see them or not. He could come to them or he had to stay in prison and face that ultimate judgment. He wanted them to know that, that they could be of one mind together with him. That's what he's telling them in chapter 1 around verse 27. That, that they could be of one mind, they could be of one purpose. Uh, we talked about the Honda, that they were all in one accord, remember? But uh, they, they were all together being a church and, and Paul is saying... That's, that's our joke to, you know, for today. Paul's there saying, we're gonna, you're going to do great things. God's going to do great things. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you about this, how to have joy, how to deal with conflict, how to have joy, how to understand that not only are we called to be a glorious church and to enjoy what God has done, but we're also called to suffer. For Christ Jesus and he wants to explain that to them and explain to them the whole issue of being of one mind uh, a unity of their hearts to do the work together to be that glorious church that church that helps others to see Christ Jesus see Christ Jesus and live in him and that requires humility and he's going to give us the example later on we're going to be talking about this in the next couple of Sundays the humility of Christ and what that means for the Christian and what it means for the church. And he's going to lay this out in a, in, a, in a beautiful way, a beautiful argument to give us the principles of how to uh, avoid conflict and how to have joy in your church membership. I mean, uh, a lot of times we uh, personalize our faith. When we talk about Jesus, it's only what it matters to us. And how we live. And that's very important. And Paul is sort of saying this is how you personally can have complete joy. But Paul's not writing just to us as individual Christians alone. In fact, his whole content and purpose is to speak to the church. And the church can have complete joy. That's really true. The church can be so united in the worship and the ministry and as Paul's going to say, in humility and suffering, that they can enter into a sweetness of soul satisfaction 
of joy as a church. That's what an essential church is anyway. We talked a lot about that last summer. What does it mean to be an essential church? An essential church is where people can't see living without it. They can't see walking out in the world without coming together as a body of believers and joining together and lifting our voices up in, in, in song and in prayer and feeling the power of the Holy Spirit as he moves in our congregation and seeing God working in mighty and gracious and wonderful ways to fulfill his purpose in us to see people come to know Christ Jesus, to see them baptized, to see them grow as disciples. All of that is a massive amount of joy. And Paul wants the Philippian church to know that they can have that joy too. But he reminds them that there are some things they have to do to get that joy. There are some things they have to understand before that joy can be opened up and God can pour out his blessings on them. There are some things they need to understand about the character of Christ and his humility and how God, because of the humility of Christ on the cross, would make it so that every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee would bow to him, including the knee of Pharaoh, I mean, sorry, Caesar Nero and anyone else. In, in the world at the Paul, time of Paul. In fact, in the world forever, every one of us will need to confess that Jesus is Lord and bow our knee to him. Whether we've asked him to be our savior or not, Paul is saying, this is what you need to understand. And so in, in this way, you can have joy. Paul's talking about his joy first, but that joy then is extended to us as we see God working in our hearts. Apparently, there was a problem at, at Philippi among the church, and they were having some issues with selfish ambition. They were having some issues with self-centeredness and pride. And apparently, they had a misunderstanding about their faith. And this is not unusual because we sometimes get this misunderstanding. It's a true thing, but it's not the extent of Christianity or all that Christianity is. And that is that when we come to know Christ Jesus, that's all we need to do. When we ask him into our hearts to be our Lord and Savior, that's it. That we get that heavenly fire insurance, you know, we die, we get to go to heaven. And that's all we really need to do. That's all that Christian life is about. And sometimes we preach the need for salvation so much that we forget that salvation is deeper as eternal life than just showing up at the pearly gates and getting into our mansion that we already have prepared for us. Because sometimes we tend to think of that and put so much emphasis on that that we become one of those Christians that are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good, right? But we don't understand that part of our faith is to be lived out now. That the beginning of our eternal life is when Christ came into our hearts. And it begins the moment we know Christ as we begin to learn and walk and grow and grow. And in the end, our hope, our living hope is that we'll go to be with Jesus. If we lay these old bodies down or if Jesus comes again, we go to be with him. But we need to recognize that Christianity is not just saying, okay, I asked Jesus into my heart. Christianity is living in a way that we become like Christ. 
that we show Christ to others, that we begin to take on the character that God wants us to have as believers of grace and humility and love and care and compassion that shows other people that they are also created in the image of God and that Jesus died on the cross to save them too if they would confess their sins and repent of their sins and turn to him. And so Paul is trying to combat this idea. It happens a lot in churches that we think that when we become a Christian, we become perfect. Well, I'm already a Christian. What else do I need to do? I don't need to do anything. I got that heavenly fire insurance in my life. I can do whatever I want to do. And, and that's what Christianity is all about. But they're missing the joy of walking with Christ Jesus. They're missing the depth of the spiritual relationship and the physical relationship we can have with Christ as God blesses us in our lives, but also as God is there with us when we go through difficulties and we go through suffering. Paul can say he's having a great deal of joy, but he's in prison. How can he be having joy and he's in prison? It's because he knows the believers in Philippi are serving Christ. And they're following the teaching that Paul had given to them to, to deepen their faith in Christ, to come together and to have that kind of joy that God can give them in their hearts and in their lives as he works through them, through their willingness and through their humility to learn. You see, the Christian life is deeper than just waiting around on a hillside to be, you know, raptured into heaven. The Christian life is how we go through difficulties and problems. Sometimes when we think that the Christian faith is just we get to go to heaven, we tend to think that it means that we'll always be walking down a primrose path. God loves us, so he won't let anything bad happen to us. But the point is that we aren't exempt from hardship and suffering. Christians face the same problems with the world that other people do. And the world is hard. The earth has been tainted by sin. And things happen and evils there in the world. And because it's out there, Christians think that when evil happens, God must not be on the job. You've heard of many people who claim to be Christian, but then something happens and they renounce their faith. There's a great scholar who was uh, a believer, supposedly, and now he's preaching ag uh, atheistic doctrine that God isn't there, that God doesn't care because he suffered some evil. And the Christians sometimes think that when I become a Christian, everything's going to be wonderful and great and happy and I'll get everything I want, and yet that doesn't happen. The idea that Paul was in prison to some was, was a disdain. Oh, Paul, you must have done something right. You got thrown in prison. You're not being a good Christian. You're in prison. Well, Paul got there because he stood up for Jesus as Lord, but they have this disdain for him. He's already talked about people that keep preaching thinking it's going to hurt Paul in chapter 1, but he doesn't care about that. The idea is that the Christian faith is a commitment to humility. It's a, commit, a commitment to loving others. And we get this selfish egotism and pride 
that we think we're supposed to be great. Everything's supposed to happen great. Our ship is always supposed to come in. If we played the lottery, which I don't think we should, our numbers would come in. But we always think Christians are going to be blessed and wonderful, and they don't have to go through tough times. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying the way to have joy is to get in touch with God's principles of walking together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, serving him, knowing that he loved them so deeply that he died on the cross for their sins and he will take care of us and he will help us whatever may come. Some of us have been writing about this, that we think the world is getting worse and worse and worse, and maybe our country had been a bastion of freedom and places where we could stand up for Christ, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and people are beginning to be persecuted for their faith. And I wonder how many of us will be faithful Christians if we got persecuted. In other words, being a Christian isn't, you aren't a Christian just because you get all the good stuff. <laughs> because you don't face hardships. You're a Christian because you love Jesus and you're gonna walk with him at any time, all time, forever. And that's what God is calling us to do. So let's take a look here at number one, the sources of joy. Verse one, the sources of joy. There are four things that Paul says here in chapter two, verse one. And this is interesting because Paul puts these four things together in a question, actually the format of a rhetorical question. And the rhetorical question, the answer is absolutely there is. Yes, there is. So we have these verses that start with, or part of this verse, these four things that start with the, with the particle if. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. And of course, the answer Paul's looking for is there is. So you could translate this as since there is. He's saying here indeed are the actual sources of joy. Since there is encouragement in Christ, you can have joy. Now, what does this word mean, encouragement? I like the, to study these words. And this word is kind of interesting because it has a legal sense to it, and it word is encouragement, but the word is, if you've ever heard of this word in Greek, maybe you've heard a preacher talk about the paraclete, that the Holy Spirit is the paraclete who comes alongside of you. So if you go into court, they're your lawyer. The Holy Spirit is your lawyer. He's your encourager. He's the one who stands beside you. And Paul says, if there is any paracleteness, in Christ, and since there is, then he's going to say, do something to make my joy complete. But the point is this, in Christ, we have a Savior who is with us. In the Great Commission, he said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He never leaves us. He's a 24-hour, seven days a week, 365-day-a-year kind of God. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's with us. And I get a little frustrated, and forgive me, but it's my little soapbox. I get a little frustrated when we pray, oh, Lord, be with me. Be with us. Well, he's never left us. If we're believers, he's still there. Why don't we just say, thank you, Lord, for your presence. Now, teach me what to do. 
guide us, lead us, not be with us as if you'd have something else to do today and we got to get on your calendar, right? On our phones or our watches or whatever. He's always with us. He's never left us. He is the one, the Savior, who is there. And Paul said, since this is true, you need to know this is a source of joy. You don't have to go and beg your God to show up. You don't have to go and beg your God to pay attention to you, to provide for you, to help you, to give you encouragement. Jesus is always there to do that. He died on the cross for our sins so that we have him all the time. How he does that, I don't know. He's God, but he's with me all the time. And you don't have to beg him to show up or worry about him not being there. He's always there. And Paul says this is a true source of joy. Because he is there, we can live. The second thing he said in this same verse is, is since there is any consolation of love. Now this word consolation of love has an interesting meaning to it. First of all, the word love there is not the normal word for love, like I love peanut butter or, or hot dogs and beans, which I love, you know. But this word is the word that you've heard before, agape. If there is the constraint of agape, and there is. Now, the word here is consolation in some versions. Let's see, um, comfort in other versions. But the idea is that it's a constraining thing, that it, has, it, it gives you the boundaries. And, and the boundaries of agape is not self-centeredness. Agape love isn't love of yourself, egotistical, narcissistic love where you look at yourself in the mirror or have thousands of pictures taken of yourself, right? It's not that kind of love. It constrains us and comforts us and gives us this consolation that says our main goal is loving others better than ourselves. It's that second part of what Jesus said is the two great commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. Care for other people. Have an outward view. It's not self-centeredness, it's outwardness. So a source of joy is often serving other people. People get into deep funks and depression, and one of the things that these, these therapists and, 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 and psychiatrists are trying to tell you is go out and do service for somebody. Because if you stop looking at your own self and you begin to look at someone else and care for them, it's an amazing thing that changes you. And the fact that Jesus died on the cross, as Paul's going to say in, in these next verses, which I'm really excited to get to in a, in a couple of Sundays here, is that he understood that he died on the cross not for himself, but for us. And to do that means that he gave his life for us. And the Bible says the greatest thing to do is give your life for your, love, your brother. That's, a, that's, a, that's a something, lay down your life, lay down your needs, lay down your self-centeredness, lay down your agenda and help someone else. And that constrains us. What it does is it takes us away from that narcissistic self-centeredness and begins to point to us out towards others to help them when they're in need, 
when they need help, when they need someone. And Paul is saying, since Jesus is with us and since his love constrains us not to look inside of ourselves, but to look outside of ourselves, then we can have joy. But he doesn't stop there. There's a third thing he says in this verse. He said, if there is any, any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And I love this. This is koinonia. You've heard that word. These are big words in the Christian life. The paraclete, agape, koinonia, and the word of the Spirit. It means that the Holy Spirit is given to us not just to help us feel good, but to enable us to serve. We're not doing it on our own. We're doing it through the Holy Spirit's power. That word fellowship there means doing it together. Fellows, the shipness of being in fellows. We're doing it together. And the Holy Spirit is there helping us to serve. And we're not left alone to our own ideas, our own strategies, our own abilities, our own thoughts. It's the Holy Spirit who is teaching us of what Jesus did, teaching us what God would have us to do, and helping us in this endeavor. And when we're doing that, there is joy. Why? Because we're not left alone. Because we're not on our own. And Paul says, because if that is true, then you can have joy. You can complete my joy is what he's going to say. But it's another thing, the three things. Jesus is with us. The agape points us to do it. The Holy Spirit is there to help us do it. And the last statement is if there are any affection and mercy. So we get to the fourth one, affection and mercy. Now, what in the world affection and mercy means? Well, that's, that's a really important thing because it's a fancy term we call a hendiadis, which is a bunch of grammarians say this. It means that the two terms kind of come together to make one. It's a way of making a two, one noun like an adjective to another noun. Okay? So it means it can be translated as affectionate sympathy. If there is any such thing, and there is such a thing as an affectionate sympathy, then Paul says you can have joy because that's a source of joy. Being a, a sympathetic to other people, sorry, sympathetic to other people. I guess I did, okay. Being sympathetic, I get to, I, I'm, I, got, I don't know, Tammy says, why do you talk with your hands all the time? I just do that. So anyway, affectionate sympathy means that you have sympathy, but it's, it, it cares about others. Now, what's so neat about this are the words that, that Paul uses here. Literally, the word um, that is given to us, affection, has to do with our guts. Now, you have to understand the way that, that this world, this ancient world, described feelings. We talk about having feelings in our heart. They talked about having it in their guts, really. It was a gut. You know, we talk about, we say, I had a gut feeling, right? We talk about that. And they said that, that affection was in the guts. The idea of that was in the guts. The, the tender mercies it's translated, the affections. You, it's, it's not that you have a mind knowledge, but you have a personal knowledge. See, it's not that it's just you can logically determine that we should be affectionate. You really do care. 
you really have it inside of you to care. And the other word that comes out here is mercy, is the idea of sympathy. Mercy is a compassion, a display that is concerned over another's misfortune. It shows pity or mercy or compassion. So if there is such a gut feeling of mercy, and there is, Paul is saying, then you're going to have joy. You have the potential for joy. These are the four sources of joy. Having Christ Jesus with you. Understanding the role of agape love in the Christian faith. Knowing that the Holy Spirit is there to help us and a deep felt compassion to do things. And I'm not talking about minds. Oh, we get together, this is what we should do. But our heart has to feel it. It has to be what God is leading us to do it. We go to tell people about Jesus Christ because we literally begin to cry because they're lost and without Christ and doomed to life eternally in hell, rejected by God because they've rejected him. We have to have that feeling in our heart that it's the right thing to do. And when we have all those things together, and since they are there, Paul is saying to the church, do it. Take care of these things, and they are going to make my joy complete. So what Paul is saying here, the four sources have to result in the four concerns, or the four results, actually, and that's the number two, the scope of joy. If you understand these four things, then you're going to be able to show them in what you do. And here are four more things. He says, make my joy complete. How do you make his joy complete? One, by thinking the same way. Two, by having the same love. That's agape again. And three, being united in the spirit. And four, intent on one purpose. Those are the results of what happens when we do the things that result in joy. And when we obtain those four things, we appropriate those four things and understand them, that we have Christ, that we have agape love, that we have the Holy Spirit, that we really feel the presence of God leading us to care, deeply care, then we can complete Paul's joy because there are the four things that are going to happen from that. And Paul goes on to say that. He says, make my joy complete because you think the same way. This this like-mindedness means that you begin to understand God's call and the marching orders of Jesus Christ is to go care for others and share Christ with them. To tell them of the joy that we have in Jesus, the forgiveness of our sin, the joy of the Savior who's always with us, the one who helps us is the Holy Spirit. All of these things we begin to overflow in us so that we can help other people and we understand that's what the work of the church is supposed to do. Paul's already talked about having one mind, this uh, thinking the same way. He said that up in uh, around chapter 1, 26, 27, 28, we're supposed to have the like-mindedness. The church doesn't exist just for the fun and friendship of church members. It exists to go take the gospel to others, to bring them into the kingdom of God if God so chooses, as he saves people, to bring them together 
in the work together to do his business and his calling. And that's what the church is supposed to do. And we have to be like-minded in that. We're not a country club. We're not some great community event. We're not a nonprofit to make everybody have fun. We are the church called by God to be like-minded in our understanding of our faith. We study the scriptures. We learn from them. We understand how God is teaching us and leading us to be faithful disciples, to know Jesus Christ because we think the way our master thinks. You know, people would say, what would Jesus do? Well, I don't think that's so important. What would Jesus do? We can learn about them. We have to do it, see? People could say, well, that's what Jesus would do. I'm going to do something different. No, we need to learn what Jesus would do. Then we do it because that's following the master, the master teacher. He says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same agape that Jesus had. See, he's going to talk more about this. The fact that Jesus loves so much to die on the cross means that we need to love so much to go and tell. Do you understand that? We have the same love. No, 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 no. Church growth experts said, go out and find people just like you, the way they think, what they do, and then go make a church with them. No. Go find whoever needs to know Christ. And friends, that's lots of people. What's so really interesting now is one of the more recent uh, surveys that was just done, it was reported on Christian Post, is that there are so many people in the world today, Americans in the United States, who don't even believe that God exists. The number is going down. And even those who call themselves Christian, they don't even believe the Bible is true. They don't believe that God does things. They don't believe what the Bible teaches. And we need to go out there because the love of God, the love that he's put into our hearts, goes to share Christ with them. And we have to do that. We'll have joy if we do that. There is joy in serving Christ. Amen. There is no joy in serving ourselves. The third thing he puts in here, which is a result, is being of one spirit together. In verse 27, he said that we would be together in the spirit. Being of one spirit. In verse uh, 2, it's saying, having united in spirit. United in spirit. Now, notice that it's not capitalized in your, ver in your translations into English. So it's not capitalized the way it is up in verse 1, which says fellowship with the spirit. But united in spirit means that together our church is united in our goal, in our spirit to do it. We don't have what I would say is conflicting agendas. We're not trying to do so many everything, so many stuff that we never get one thing done. But we focus together on what God would have us to do. That's why the church should always be asking and should always be looking at what they're doing to determine if this is where God is working. So that together we can go join with God and do the ministry that he's calling us to do. It's always, we need prayer. We always need prayer to be able to discern God's will. And we, we can't have this idea, well, 
God said to me, and I know this is what we need to do. Well, if God said it to you, he's going to say it to others. So we better find out who, what he's saying to everybody. Um, I don't agree with certain views out there in theology of uh, what they call word of faith. Somebody can, but it's some of these words of faith. Uh, somebody has a word of faith that, that the church is supposed to provide him with a brand new jet. But I don't find that in scripture. So we have to look at the scripture to make sure that we have the same mind together, the same spirit, the same unity that God is calling us to. And the last thing is intent on one purpose. The intent on one purpose. Having this look, this, this understanding of, of, of an opinion with regard to something, thinking and judging and set our minds on that purpose. The purpose, this word is used eight times in Philippians. Apparently the church wasn't so unified that, that the Philippian church was struggling with disunity. Maybe they had people who said we should have red carpet and others saying no, we should have blue carpet. Or, you know, and they were getting away from the idea of what they're supposed to do about going out and witness to Jesus Christ. It's like a bunch of fishermen sitting around talking about fishing and nobody goes out to catch anything. You've got to go and have this intent to be able to go and see things and understand them. It means we learn what the church is supposed to be and then we do what the church is supposed to do. It means, it means that we get together to let God have his way in our hearts so that we can make a difference in our community around us. The people that we meet, those that we come into contact every day who are created in the image of God but don't know him. And they're lost in their sins and they need to hear the good word, the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on the cross. That's the intent of what the church is to do. And joy comes when you're about your father's business. Joy comes when we know we're doing the right stuff. Because God blesses it and God brings about the success of joy. That's number three in our last point we're going to look at. Number three, the success of joy in verses three and four. Now, this has two parts to it, so we don't have four things, but there are four things in verse one, four things in verse two, and there's really just two things in verse three, but they are comprehensive too, and they bring this all together to help Paul under uh, the church at Philippi to understand Paul's viewpoint of what the sources of joy and the scope of joy or the results of joy can do and how you can have the success of joy. And the interesting thing is something that is uh, a struggle for some church people, experts. Uh, we talk about metrics. Metrics is a fancy term that means how we measure things. Well, how do we measure things? Well, I watched a little bit of uh, a, a baseball game the other day, and they were evaluating their metrics by how many runs they had, how many people they got across the home plate. And, they, and, and the, the team that had the most won. And they were saying that, you know, your metrics, well, how many runs batted in, how many errors you made, um, pitching ERAs and all that kind of stuff, all added up to point towards how successful you would be in getting to win the game. Well, how do Christians win the game? How do we measure win the game? Sometimes it used to be how many people show up to church, how big a church we grow. 
Well, I'm always uh, the understanding that if I, I took a couple of hundred dollar bills and, and uh, you know, passed out numbers and called a number in the middle of the church, there'd be a lot of people that show up every Sunday if I did that consistently every Sunday. But they'd be here for the wrong reasons. But people have to be here for the right reasons, but the success of joy, the way we measure joy, as Paul is trying to tell the church at Philippi, might be totally different than what we expect it to be. Because what measures or explains joy is not something that is always an inward, wonderful, great feeling, but it's an outward service to God. So this is what Paul says, how we measure it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So what you need to understand, the two parts are two sentences that have a two-part construction. The two-part construction in both senses is this. They begin with a negative, don't do this, and then they end up with a positive. Don't do this, but do this. That's number verse three. Verse four, don't do this, but do this. So the two positives end up showing how we measure joy, what success is in joy. It's not in doing the negative things, but it is in doing the two positive things. Now they require us to think, and Paul isn't writing here in a a way that's just, I mean, it's simple, but it, it, it causes us to stop and think. We have to ponder it. We have to meditate upon it. Psalm 1 tells us that the, uh, the, the one who is blessed is the one who meditates on the, on the law, on God's word day and night. So Paul has given us something to think about here because it seems like the way that joy would be successful would be how we would feel elated or emotional or emotive. And, but that's not necessarily what joy is all about. In the kingdom of God, joy is when someone comes to know Christ. When someone understands the mercy and love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. So this, let's take a look at these things and talk about them because this refers to the sense of joy. Now, what he says here is, first of all, in verse um, 3, that we don't act out of any selfish ambition or out of vainglory, conceit. So we don't do things that we're called to do or we do out of this selfishness or empty glory, glory that we would get for doing it. So we're not the Pharisee who says, I'm so glad, I'm so glad God, I'm so glad God that you have me do this and this and this. Not like that publican. That's false glory. That's pride. That's self-centeredness. So we don't do anything because of what we'll get in return. You know, a lot of times human love and, and the world's love is not unconditional love. You've got to stop and think about that. I love you for what you do for me. Well, I love you. Maybe I say I love you, but you've got to love me in return, see? I don't love you unconditionally. I don't see you as someone for whom Christ died. 
I don't bother to tell you about Jesus because you don't matter to me. Because all that matters to me is me. Numero uno, me, myself, and I, the three of us, right? That's all that matters. That's not the Trinity, me, myself, and I. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Trinity. And the, God, the understanding is that Paul says, don't do anything out of this kind of selfishness or conceit. Well, I'm going to do this because I'm going to show everybody I'm a better church member than they are. I'm a better Christian than they are. Our goal isn't to show people how great a Christian we are. Our goal is to show them Jesus and how great he is because no one of us is perfect. We are all still sinners who stand in the need of grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Well, I asked Jesus to forgive me, and he did. Yeah, but we keep on making mistakes. We keep on sinning. We keep on doing the wrong things. And it's a daily battle to give our hearts to the Lord, and the Holy Spirit helps us. And when we will be free of that is when Jesus takes us to be with him in heavenly glory. But right now, we're in that process of still trying to put off the old man, that old nature, and put on the new nature of Christ Jesus. So we're always asking the Holy Spirit to check our motives, to check our weapons to make sure they're not full of deadly ammunition, to help us figure out how to live in a, a humble, loving, compassionate way. So we can't do it out of uh, selfishness or vainglory. Nobody here should want to be number one. I know I talk about turf owners, but turf owners ought to be not people who expect everybody to give them obedience and respect, but turf owners should be the ones who hold the church to the true foundation of following Jesus Christ, making Jesus the Lord of the church, the head of the church. Paul says, don't do that. Do nothing out of selfishness selfish ambition or vain conceit or vain glory. But, he said, do this, but do things in humility, considering others more important than yourself. And that's important. Jesus said, love others, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul is going forward and saying, love your neighbor better than yourself. They're worth more to Christ. They also need to know him as Lord and Savior. Put yourself down to pull them up. Put yourself lowly to be able to meet, for them to meet Jesus. I'm not saying that we fall down and idolize people. We have too many celebrities out there. You know? Too many influencers. We all look to these, and if they say jump, we jump. No, I want to jump if Jesus says jump. I want to be able to see people know him, understand him. And Paul said, the success of joy comes when we're not doing the first part, but when we're doing the second part, considering others to be more important than ourselves. Oh, but we go around saying, don't you know who I am? Well, I, if I said that, I, I guess it'd be better for us to say, yeah, I, we're just a poor sinner saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to be. Not the head honcho, the mucky muck, whatever it is, but to be the servants. Everyone in the church is called to be a servant, to consider others more important than ourselves. 
and to let God lead through that. Remember, we have Jesus with us. We have the love of God defined for us. We have the Holy Spirit here, and we have this feeling of love that we were supposed to give to other people. And because we have all of that, we can have the same mind. We can have the same purpose. We can go out with this affection and help people know the Lord. So why do we have to keep doing things out of selfish conceit? I don't think Jesus is ever going to say to us, hey, I am so happy that you were the tyrant of your church. I'm so happy that you were the tyrant in your relationships with others. He's not going to say, well done, thou good and faithful tyrant. He's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what he calls us to be. And I want to tell you something. An essential church is when somebody comes in from outside and sees each one of the church members being servants to others. They won't know how to deal with that. They won't know what to do with it because that's not what the world says is what is, what is successful. The world says you're successful when you kick everybody off, else off the ladder and you push them down to lift yourself up. They don't understand that lifting ourselves up in Christ is putting others in favor of ourselves more important and considering them to be important than us. Jesus will meet our needs. We will feel wonderful joy when we give others a place of importance and concern and care and compassion. In verse 4, he repeats something like this. But he gives us a, a marching order. He gives us a principle to do. The first verse, verse 3, just says, don't do these, this thing, but do the other thing. But here he says, a little bit different, he says, Everyone should not look for his own interests. This, uh, the CSB doesn't, it gives it a little bit, it doesn't bring it out as much. Everyone should look out not for his, only for his own interests. But it literally says, don't look out for your own interests only. In other words, it's important to take care of your needs, yes. But the word there is to scope out. It actually is the Greek word scopus, which we get scope from in English. You know, so you got a telescope and got a microscope. You're looking at it. It's focusing on it. He says, don't just focus on your own interests. Don't just focus on the things. In fact, the word interests isn't even in the text of the Greek text. It's just the things. Just it, the stuff. Whatever belongs to you, just don't look out for all your junk, your stuff. What you do, what you want, what you are interested in. Just don't do that only. But, so that's not what to do, is to be self-centered on yourself and your stuff. But it says, and it does double duty, the word scope, but scope out the stuff of others. Now, that's an interesting statement because Paul doesn't clarify that exactly, but the understanding of what humility is all about gives us the, un, the more deeper awareness of what he means by that. He doesn't mean to be a busybody in everybody else's affairs. He doesn't mean to go in and critique and judge and tell people what they should do to mismanage or manage other people's stuff. But he's telling us that we have a responsibility, maybe on 
we could say two levels, but there could be so many other different levels. Uh, scholars of this passage talk about it being several levels. One is the physical needs. People have physical needs. There are people who are hurting, who struggle. Now, we're, we live in a great nation, and, and yet there's still hunger, and there's still stuff we need to do to help other people. And we can focus on scoping out how to find out how others have those needs and remedying them. God has blessed us with so many things. We can bless others and we can help. And that's why the church is supposed to minister to the needs of people. Jesus said, just don't say be warmed and fed and let them go out the door, but to feed them and clothe them. And that's certainly important, but that's not the only thing that Paul, I think, here is talking about because sometimes that can lead to a, 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 a kind of a narrow social gospel that all we're supposed to have is food kitchens and clothing stores, which is great and wonderful, and we should do that. But there's something else that he's speaking about at the church at Philippi, and that is to say, how about their spiritual needs as well? Don't pay attention just to your own spiritual needs, but make it possible for others to grow in Christ, to be discipled, to learn, to understand, to come to know Christ, and to walk as faithful Christians. Part of the church's ministry is to teach all nations, baptize them, and to teach them everything that God has, called, you know, has taught us. And Jesus put that in the Great Commission, and we're called to go out and help them grow spiritually as well. Now, that doesn't mean we run roughshod over people and make judgments about their spiritual walk, but it does mean that we try to help others grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is to lift up their, them as individuals for whom Christ died, to scoop out their character and to understand how Christ Jesus can help us all grow together. Jesus suffered on the cross. We have to suffer as well. But the way to, to joy is to know that God is calling us to be servants, to be one individuals, believers in the church who care about the people we meet, who seek to help them meet their physical needs when necessary, but also to meet their spiritual needs in coming to know Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what the good news is all about. That's why we need to tell people. That's why we need to go out and to have these understandings of the sources of joy and the results of joy, and find out that the success of joy comes when we don't focus on ourselves, but we start looking to help others and be servants for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're going to have a hymn. We're going to ask our musicians to come and uh, bring revival to our hearts as we stand just a minute to, to sing this. And I encourage you to think this morning about being a servant about knowing that Christ is there to help us to care for others and to help them come to know Christ Jesus as Lord. Let's stand together as we sing.